Welcome to No More Shame, the podcast dedicated to breaking the shame narrative and healing the wounds of shame that hold us back. In each episode, Dr. Megan Clunan will be exploring the tools of psychology and the truths of Christian theology to help you live free from shame and in the reality of your true identity. So let's dive into today's episode. All right. Welcome to episode two of the No More Shame podcast. Uh, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome back. Last week was kind of that intro, um, and now we're really going to be diving into some of the specifics and how living free of shame based on specific realities in our life can create so much more life. Last week in the intro, I, I hope you were able to glean a little bit of about who I am, where I'm coming from, and why this information is hopefully so important to you too, as it is to me, and will My goal, my aim, my prayer is that it would equip and empower and encourage you to live in the freedom of who Jesus declares you to be and nothing less. All right, so we're going to do that again, just as a reminder, we're going to be doing this through the use of the tools of psychology and the truths of Christian theology, blending those together in these conversations. So today we're going to get started. All right. One of the specific realities that I want to address with you all today is that of shame language. Shame language, it's not actually your native tongue, okay? That's the tagline here. Shame language is not your native language. It's not my native language, and yet it's something that we find ourselves speaking as if this is how we should talk. So today we're going to talk about why we do this, where it comes from, what perpetuates it, why it's got to change. We're also going to unpack how to change it because knowing the problem, that's only half the solution. You ever been in a group project or worked in an organization or been on a committee and only complainers? were surrounding you. They only had the problem, but nobody had the solution. It's pretty exhausting. We get the problem. What's the answer? So let's talk about what the answer might be as a part of this conversation today. All right, kicking it off. Shame language, again, not your native language. You and I were not created to degrade ourselves. That's the bottom line. And that's what shame does. We're not created to live by a lesser understanding of our value. And yet we do this all the time. Some of us do this, it looks like chronic comparison because we compare ourselves or we uh, chronically try to measure up to some proverbial, nebulous, not really clear, very vague standard, which makes it worse because we don't even know that we've reached it, right? So we're just forever pushing to try to measure up to something we actually can't even define. We just don't feel like we're enough. Okay, this creates that performance-based mentality The idea that I'm only as good as what I've done successfully today. And if I don't succeed in something today, or at least show others that I have, because sometimes it's not even about feeling like we have ourselves, but like what other people think, right? Then I just fall short of being a valued individual or a valued contributor to my company or in my family or whatever. Shame language doesn't have to be how we talk to ourselves though. And it doesn't have to be overt either. Truly, it can be obvious and it's in its more obvious ter- uh, forms. It looks like, you know, I don't know, I beat myself up or I call myself stupid or I, I call myself hateful names even, right? That's in its mo- more obvious form. And a lot of those, you know, if we do that, it's because unfortunately that's probably to some extent how we were raised. Maybe people did that to us. Maybe we, we saw that modeled around us. But it's not always so obvious, is it? It can be more subtle. And in fact, it's more subtle than not usually. It comes in the form, for example, like um, of that checklist that you have, but you didn't quite finish. So there's that gnawing annoyance lingering over you that says you could have done more. 
you could have done better. I was somewhere the other day and I was talking with a group of people. And so really, right, you're just like standing in a circle, having a conversation. And I look down and on this one guy's wrist, he's wearing one of those message bracelets, you know, like one of those rubber bracelets that has like a message carved out of it. Um, and there were only two words on his bracelet. And the two words were do better. <laughs> I was like, wow. And there it is in your face again. <laughs> okay. I immediately thought to myself, man, what pressure is this guy living under that every single day he reads those words, do better, do better, right? And what if you don't do better? I thought, right? Like, was was then like today a failure? Was that, it means you're a failure? What are you trying to do better at? What's your definition of that? And truth be told, I, like we didn't get to have a conversation about it. I'm sure there's some ulterior meaning to it. But in general, how many of us have that mentality that we just don't ever take off, right? That bracelet, proverbial bracelet, that we don't take off. It's that mentality in our heads all the time that we're never quite good enough, that we're never quite smart enough or strong enough or pretty enough. Maybe we're never quite quite rich enough or we haven't reached out to enough people or we haven't parented or dealt with our spouse or handled our emotions well enough. So we must do better and wanting to do better. There's nothing wrong with that. Like that, there's a, there's a greatness to that perspective, but it's got to be held in balance and specifically in the truth of who Jesus already declares us to be. And when it doesn't, when it goes outside of that, that is shame language. Now, shame isn't always big, right? And like I'm saying, like sometimes it's these little things that just kind of linger over us. It's not always big, but it does have a big impact. It's like a thousand paper cuts creating a big wound. Yeah. Okay. So shame can come at us in really big ways. So maybe, maybe it started young for some of us. Maybe when we were kids, we were physically or verbally attacked. We were degraded like that. Today, we see those same things can continue. Sometimes we'll perpetuate that same story in our lives because that's like all we've known And we continually find ourselves in those kinds of relationships or those kinds of scenarios that continue to break us down because we're familiar with that language. But also, I mean, we live in the broader global understanding that there is a world of sexism and racism and ageism that surrounds us. And, you know, where there's any ism, there's shame. However shame is coming at us, be it subtly or obviously at its core, what it's speaking to us is the language of identity. It's challenging our identity. It's challenging our native origin and it's challenging our native language. And how do we know this? Scripturally speaking, we know this because this is exactly what happened to Eve. Some of the first words ever recorded in scripture, Genesis 1 and 2, we can read the creation story and then we roll into three, right? Some of the first words ever created in scripture were the words of shame, words that began to alter humanity's understanding of themselves. And language is that, by the way. It's something that does form us. It alters our humanity. How we speak forms ourselves, others, society. Developmental psychology and sociology, they point to this fact, point to this understanding, understanding the importance of language and its power to shape us. We don't think without language. We can think visually, but if someone needed you to describe to them what you're visually seeing, you're going to use words. We don't live in a world where we don't have this kind of of messaging surrounding us at every waking moment, constantly being bombarded by messages. Hopefully, not all those messages are bad, right? But they're always around us. They're everywhere. And they're in the form of language. We're also constantly thinking and thinking. And for some of us, 
thinking and thinking and thinking. (laughs) Okay. Some of us don't have that off switch. I get it. I'm probably in the same bucket with you. But when we're thinking, what are we thinking in? We're thinking in sentences. We're thinking in words. We're thinking in language. And this is the case, whether we say it out loud or not, and it is formative. So if I say I'm capable, for example, there's certain challenges and obstacles. If I talk to myself in that kind of language that I'll see them in life, but instead of seeing them as a barrier, I'm going to see them as an opportunity to overcome or try to grow stronger, talking to myself as if I am capable saying, no, you know, I'm not perfect. That's not what we're saying, right? I'm not saying I'm going to do this exactly right, or I'll definitely succeed. But I can guarantee you that if I believe myself to be capable, that there is more that I will overcome and be successful in than if I believe myself to be incapable. Because if I'm telling myself I'm incapable, just that kind of language automatically puts me on the bench because I'm not actually going to get in the game to play because I don't think I can do this. So why would I even show up? Or if I show up with that line of thought, so maybe I'm like, all right, I'll try to get out there, try to do something, but I don't think I'm going to do anything successfully. I'm going to probably show up half-hearted because I'm going to be guarding at least half of my heart from feeling the pain of life. So I convince, so I'll convince myself ahead of time that I can actually, can't actually do this. And so if I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to actually be able to do this anyway, when I don't actually do it, it doesn't have to hurt so bad. And I get it. I've been there, but that's not really a great way to live, is it? Or maybe on a more spiritual level, we can bring this into, into that conversation. It can look like, you know, and I've heard this from people and probably thought it myself a few times, you know, God is good, but if he doesn't come through for me, I'm sure it's because he had better things to do than take care of me in this issue moment, whatever. Ever thought that? It's almost like we're trying to let God off the hook. It's cool that you didn't take care of me right now. You probably had better things to do. Ever prayed, maybe hoping he can hear it and will answer it and saying yes, while at the same time out the other side of your mouth saying, yeah, but if he doesn't, it's okay. I understand. That's shame language when we say it's because he had better things to do. Guys, he doesn't have more important things to take care of my friends. You are the important thing. If he doesn't come through the way we hope, it's not because you were unimportant. It's because there's a bigger plan at play because you were actually too important to leave you in a lesser reality. And if that means struggle so that you learn to overcome or become stronger or know what it's like, so now you can turn and help others understand that even in the fires of this life, God will not leave you, then it's actually because God loves you that he's leaving you where you may be. And I know that's hard. And honestly, I don't like it when that happens to me. But I'm going to challenge you and I'm going to remind myself here as well. We've got to be careful not to say the rationale behind that is because we're not important. That's not our native language. We're not meant to speak like that. But if we speak like that, we're going to live like that. And if we live as if we're unimportant to God, similarly to the mentality of I'm incapable, imagine the repercussions. He calls you out. He asks you to do something. But no, God, I'm not important. Or maybe you respond with, sure, but I'm going to do this half-heartedly. You know, a more, uh, you know, holier version of that can sound like, oh, yeah, I'll do it for a season, but we'll see how this plays out. You're, You're giving yourself a back door. And if we give ourselves a back door, we're going to take it every time. 
But what if we believed we were actually important to God? There would be no platform too small. It doesn't matter how it plays out because I'm not actually going to define what's worthy or not. He is. He defines my steps. And so I go with confidence because I know and believe in how God sees me. I've got to listen to that instead. I've got to live in my true identity and speak my true language. And so going back to the garden conversation in the beginning, some of the very first words spoken in all of scripture from the serpent specifically were those of shame. When he begins to give Eve new language. And so here turning to chapter three in Genesis, we see this take place. And we can, like, I'm going to read these verses in a moment, and I want you to listen. Can you hear it in her language, in her response? You can tell shame has taken root because she shifts in her language. When the words we speak are not aligned with the word of God, my friends, we will see harm result every time. And so chapter three, verses one through six. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Okay, first of all, we know that's not what God said. We can read back a few verses. God didn't say you shall not eat from it or touch it, did he? But the serpent continues the conversation and he tells her, he says, you will certainly not die. What's he doing? That first question he asks in verse one, he says, has God really said to you? He's getting her to doubt God. He's getting her to doubt the one that created her, that made her, that tells her who she is. And then he continues in cultivating that doubt. This is a subtle way right? The serpent says, you're surely not die. What's he do? I mean, he's planting doubt in her mind, doubt about what God is up to, but also about her own identity at that moment. Ask, getting her to consider by asking her, maybe God's holding out on you. And why would someone hold out on you? Because they don't really see you as that important. They don't really value you. And so again, if the one that made us doesn't really see us as important and doesn't really value us, well, that changes everything, doesn't it? All of a sudden, I can't trust him then. The one that I was made for, the one that we've been made to be loved by and and to love in return, right? If he doesn't actually care as much as we had hoped, that changes everything. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people where they're like, yeah, I believe God is all powerful, but I just don't know if he cares. You know, in first Peter, we're reminded, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's such a beautiful verse and it's such simple words, but that's a real challenge for many because the subtle language of shame has come in that says you are not actually his beloved creation. And if that's true, right? If that's true, then I have to start taking things into my own hands and I've got to start defining my own success and performing so others think I have value because the very thing that I long for from God, I'm not seeing. So now I'm not receiving that. Now I'm not understanding myself in light of that created identity, but because I was made for it and there's this gaping void in my life because I'm not actually letting it be filled by the thing that can fill it, I'll do whatever it takes to fill the void that's created by the loss. But I'm going to tell you, friends, nothing's going to work. I've been there. 
or you've looked for everything else to try to define and give value and recognize that you matter, you're not abandoned, you're not alone, there's a God that loves you. And if it is not filled by God himself, it will never be enough. This language of shame, which declares you're not enough, so run harder, so you don't have to feel the sting of that potential truth. It's just going to continue, and it's just going to get worse. Because your performance of yesterday, it's not going to count for the performance of today. Your successes for yesterday, if that's our mentality, they're not going to count for the success of today. It's never going to be enough. There will always be a price to pay to attempt to cover ourselves. But the beauty of our faith, the beauty of Jesus Christ is that he knows this. And he says, I know because I do actually fully love you and do fully remember your identity at all times. Even if you don't, I have come and paid that price for you so that you will always be enough, holy, beloved, righteous, beyond reproach. And it is irrevocable. Nothing can take that from you. But we see here in the garden, the language begins to shift from the truth of God's love. And what happens once it shifts? An action takes place that does not represent her true identity. Because how we think will guide now how we live. How we speak will guide how we live. She starts living out of a different identity because the language she's speaking out loud and internally is not one of her origin. It's not one of her true identity. As a result of that, not only does she act differently, then she speaks differently as well to those around her. We see her speak to Adam. We see Adam's reaction and response. Then we see them speak to God. And what comes out of their mouths? More shame, more blame. What would have happened if Eve remembered her true identity? If Adam had remembered his? In C.S. Lewis's um, sci-fi series books, um, if you've not read them, highly encourage that. There's a scene where there's this Satan man in the book, right? Um, he's like the satanic Satan figure. And there's also an Eve-like character. So basically, um, in this series, Lewis is writing a story on a different planet completely, um, basically the same creation story as it plays out that we, you know, we see in our scriptures. But instead, um, the the mistake of disobeying God didn't happen. Okay. And so what then that unfolds and looks like is, is written about and so forth. But anyway, in part of this story, the, these two are having a conversation, the Satan man and the Eve like character, they're having this conversation. And at some point she's talking with him and the Satan man asks her, well, why doesn't she go to this one part of the land where it's beautiful and so forth? And she tells him, she says, it's because the God figure right in the story has forbidden her to do so. And the same Satan guy is like, well, well, don't you want to go over there? Don't you think it's beautiful? Blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, he asked her, why don't you go? You can, you're free to do it. And unlike what we see unfold in our reality in this sci-fi series, this Eve character remembers her true identity in the moment. And Lewis writes a beautiful response for her to provide. He says to the Satan man, or she says to the Satan man, some of the best words I've I've read in terms of understanding what it means to really die to yourself. She says back to him, essentially, yes, I do want that. But he, meaning God, has made me with a way to live outside of my will. Basically, what she's saying, she's like, I'm not my own. I am his. At that moment, she didn't forget who she was. She remembered she was more than just her own. She was, she was more than what the Satan figure said. She was God's creation. So we're going to have another conversation on identity another time, but for now we need to stick to this discussion of language. How we speak to ourselves will determine how we live, right? 
That's what we talked about a second ago. And our brains do need us to talk back to them. That might, you know, I get it. That might sound a bit schizophrenic. Okay. It's not. I promise. Trust me. Okay. You can talk back to your brain. It's a good thing. Our brain is going to tell us how to live unless we tell it how to think. I'm going to say that again because I need you guys to hear that. Our brain is going to tell us how to live unless we tell it how to think. It does this because before we could understand that we had the power to tell it how to think, it had already begun creating and starting to create new neural pathways to establish lines of thought around how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we see the world, creation, and so forth. As a result of that, it created essentially habits of thought before we had the chance to understand that maybe we shouldn't be thinking these ways. Maybe I need to reevaluate a given thought. And the problem is, as many of us end up going through life based on pathways that were created when we were too young to begin to consider, should we even be thinking like this? And so we live with a childlike brain. We need to grow up. We need to mature, right? And this is hard because, you know, if you grew up in a home and we'll take the more big, obvious examples here where you were constantly told that you didn't matter, you wouldn't amount to anything, no one cared for you, you were stupid, or any other name in the book that we're not going to say on this podcast, those language experiences formed you. They shaped you and taught you how to think about yourself. So now there's this pathway in your brain. It's something that your brain has held onto for years, for decades maybe. And so anything that might hit that nerve that you're not exactly as intelligent as you'd hoped or whatever is going to immediately say, see, they were right. See, you're so dumb. See, you're so stupid. See, you don't matter. And now, yeah, let's take the more covert ways. Maybe it wasn't so obvious. And, you know, they might have been, this might have been done in a given home, even by parents that were well-meaning. Like a small example was like, you got a report card one day and you come home and you have all A's, maybe a B, right? All A's and a B. You bring it home, you share it with your mom or your dad or whomever, and they look at it and you're decently proud of this. Look what I did. This is awesome. But instead of saying, hey, wow, tell me about how you got all these grades, Instead of saying that, they kind of hone in on that B. And they say, why'd you get that B? They hone in on the one thing that isn't the best. And they say, tell me why you got this in math, even though you got an A and everything else. Well, that conveys to a child that's not able to understand that maybe her parents are asking or his parents are asking because they're just curious. What is conveyed in that moment is my perfection is the only thing that matters because the one imperfection I had is the one thing that was actually called out, not the things that I had done well. Or it could be something like, you know, you share a dream with your mom or dad or whomever. You tell them something you want to do with your life, where you go, where you hope to go, uh, what you want to be when you grow up and, and so forth. But instead of the support that you hope to hear back from them, you hear something like, oh yeah, how are you going to make that happen? Or maybe something a little more negative than that. You're told you're naive and that's just a dream. And one day you'll grow up and realize those dreams don't really have the potential to come to pass. Maybe those words were asked in innocence, right? The, oh yeah, how are you going to do this? One. Maybe they were asked because they were trying, you know, your parent was trying to get you to think what steps I have to take to make something happen. It's not a bad thought to think. That's not always how it's interpreted, is it? In my own home, I remember being praised for being around people <laughs> that were important. Okay, like I remember hearing conversations about other people too, right? Uh, and and that essentially they were more important because they were in the room with the people that were important, which really just conveyed to me I was just lucky to be in the room with people that matter because 
I don't actually matter. I'd like to think very much so that that wasn't really what my parents were trying to tell me, but that's what it was interpreted. And so to this day can be something that is a default thought because that was a neural pathway that got formed in childhood. And unfortunately, it can continue to speak. And I've got to make the conscious decision not to speak that language. The language we hear and the messages we pick up when we're younger before we're able to abstractly think. And by abstract, all I mean is think big picture. Uh, just because this thinking like just because this was said maybe isn't actually what what is being meant by by what was said or maybe there's another way to interpret it as kids we actually our brain doesn't have the capacity to do that and we'll talk more about our brain another time but everything is all kind of all or nothing black and white kind of thinking as a child and again if we don't grow out of that or reevaluate it when once we have the ability to do so we end up kind of living with that child like mentality. Those lines of thinking have been created. And so, so that feels more natural and I get it. It feels more real than pushing back, but we've got to evaluate it because maybe we're not speaking the language to ourselves or to others that we should be. Maybe we're speaking something that isn't supposed to be how we speak. And how do we know if that's the case? We know because we have to choose to align it with scripture. We hold it up to what the Bible says, to what Jesus says about who we are. If we do not do that, I can guarantee you, you will at minimum not know if you're thinking accurately and at maximum will not be thinking accurately. Okay. Satan has come to steal and kill and destroy. And part of his stealing is stealing our understanding of our true identity. And one of the ways that that's done is through language, is through how we speak. So let's take some of these examples, right, that I just shared. If you were attacked verbally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, if you've been degraded, overtly so, obviously so, textbook example so, called names, beaten up, abused, shamed, all those things created in your story need to be held next to scripture. They've got to be held up to what, what does Jesus say though? Because his voice is the only one that matters. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 that he cherishes you as his child. He doesn't call you those names. His language about you is dramatically different than that. He calls you his beloved. He calls you holy and righteous because you're his. He called you an image bearer. You're the image bearer of the creator God. You and I are those created beings, which means we have infinite value, dignity, and worth. Take the more covert versions, though. You know, when other people see our imperfections. Right. The thought of, oh, man, I've got to be perfect to be fully accepted or, oh, this is uh, the only thing anybody is ever seeing. And so I'm not really something to be proud of or I'm not proud of myself or this myself. Reality is hold that to scripture. There's no one who's perfect. No, not one. Scripture tells us that while we were still sinners, he died for us, which means while we still did not even acknowledge his existence, we didn't even know of who he was. He died for us. Because he loved us. He didn't wait for you to be perfect, nor does he expect you to be that in order to receive his love. One of my favorite professors, Dr. Jones, shout out there, um, he would often say that Jesus never made belief in him a precondition of his healing ministry. Meaning I'm not waiting on you to get your to get that you have value before I, I value you. Jesus doesn't wait on that because he never stops valuing you. Take another one. One where, you know, the other people matter more. You're just lucky to be in the room with them. Well, praise be to God. First Corinthians one. Okay. We're reminded, this is it. For the foolishness of God is is wiser than mankind and the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. For consider your calling brothers and sisters. 
that there were not many wise according to the flesh and not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and these insignificant things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no human may boast before God. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My friends, God has a history of using the weak, the outcast, the unexpected, the quote, not supposed to be in the room people to change the world. So I'll gladly be a part of that group. And then so instead of being something that that lingers and creates continual pain, this is actually a really beautiful reality. It is freedom when put back into the truth of Christian scripture. Jesus gets to declare that our value and nothing and no one else does. If I think along these lines, I process my language through that lens, through the foundation and filter of scripture, and I can guarantee that I'm thinking accurately. There are times it'll hurt, no doubt. It's going to cut, right? Scripture does that sometimes. But even the cutting the scripture does is to cut away the things that in the end will kill us and hurt us anyway. The cutting of scripture is not a cut that injures for the sake of injury. That's not what it's about. It's a cut that can hurt and might injure for a while, but it's so that new life can actually grow. New life that actually needs to be in the place where the old, dead, broken is, that can be removed and new can come. Because sometimes until we get rid of the junk, there might not be room for it. Ever been dating someone and know that person's not really for you and you stayed in the relationship a little bit too long because you're just like, well, we've just been dating for so long. Might as well keep it up. That's a real romantic reason to stay together. But anyways, um, yeah, when we know we should probably end a relationship, we should probably end the relationship. But part of it is so that we can be free to find the right relationships, right? But sometimes we stay in it because it just feels familiar. We get so wrapped up in it because it just is what it is. Same for shame. Same for that kind of language. Sometimes we just get so wrapped up in it. It just feels like this just is what it is. We've got to let it get cut away. And we have to saturate our minds in what the scriptures say so that we know that we indeed are doing this accurately. We are cultivating the proper language How we speak will determine how we live. Proverbs 8.21 says, the Bible tells us, or it says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. This is true. Psychology has proven it, but theology has been saying it for millennia. We know now the power of language. God is for you, friends. He is giving you the tools to overcome. He's giving you the tools to live free in your true identity, unafraid, and unashamed. We need to let him tell us how to speak. And so my encouragement and my hope for you is that today's podcast would be just that, something that continues to to edify and encourage you along this journey. To live free in your true identity, unafraid and unashamed. Thank you for joining us this week. Our prayer is that through this week's topic, you have been encouraged in the truth and discover tools for further freedom in your true identity, one created for and loved by God, one where shame has no say. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the No More Shame podcast so you don't miss next week's topic. You can also follow us on Instagram at no more shame underscore podcast 
for encouragement and reminders throughout the week. Join us every Monday for new episodes that will empower and equip you to live in the freedom of your true identity.